Right then, welcome folks to episode number nine of Dude and a Monkey. My name is Ian Loring and always I am joined by... Mark Foster. Yep, uh, I'm running this shit this week so um, I'll be running through what we'll be doing. So we are, uh, well the main review is going to be obviously Quentin Tarantino's latest Django Unchained which took about a month to get across the pond, much to everyone's annoyance, but we shall be talking about Django. Uh, we'll then get into a discussion topic, which this week is going to be um, basically with the news page and being blockbuster going into administration, um, what the high street is going to look like for film fans within like the next six months, probably, and uh, whether it's a good or a bad thing. Uh, we'll also get into one old, one new, as we usually do, and then we'll uh, probably call it quits there. Um, well, like, even though the, I actually got the structure the wrong way around, but we'll probably call it quits there. Uh, no marathon this week for a couple of reasons. Now, A, just simply haven't had time to watch it, frankly, uh, this weekend, whatever it is we're doing. And also, because we said on the last show, you have until Friday to let us know <laughs> what it is we were gonna, uh, we were gonna do. And then the show went up the day after the club's in date for that. Now, um, the, the reason for this, which was something uh, I was talking to Mark about before we go into, into the show today, uh, basically, the way our uh, podcast kind of storage allocation works is that we get 250 megabytes a month, like a rolling club, and then we have to kind of, and then once we hit that, we can't upload anything. So, um, Basically, uh, but the thing is, we don't have uh, any bandwidth limits, so like we like people can download as much as they want, which is good. Uh, but it does mean that occasionally, you know, the, the the shows might not come out when you expect them to. Uh, for instance, this this week's show should come out very promptly, but after this week's show, we can't actually put another show up until the first of February. So then you're gonna have to wait until the first of February for another show. So you're basically you're gonna get the last show and this show within about three days of each other, but then you're not going to get another show for about two weeks. Uh, unfortunately, there's nothing we can really do for this. We do pay for the service that we use, and to be honest, not really wanting to pay any more for more storage. So this shit is free, folks. So if you don't like it, sorry, but uh, hey. Yeah. Yeah, but basically, it, as the show goes on, it gets more popular. If it does get more popular, which it fucking better. Do. <laughs> um, we're actually quite popular at the moment, which we're actually very glad of, and we're very, we're very happy that you're all listening and enjoying, and it's not giving us feedback. That's brilliant, and obviously, you're telling other people to listen to it because uh, the episodes are getting more popular as we go along. Uh, as we go along, it, it's something we'll look into, possibly either expanding our. Um, Expanding that so we've got a little more storage, or possibly sort of as we put one episode up, taking one down and sort of doing stuff like that. And we'll we'll work out some way of looking at it. But for now, that's the groove we're going on. Because the thing is, it's like basically we get 250 megs a month, but then like once those shows are up, they're up. You know, mm. it's, it's like I don't think we can delete the shows and then like free up storage. I'm not entirely sure if that's the way it works. It's it's a bit of a weird system, but I I kind of. 
in a way I like it because people can doubt like we don't have to worry about hitting download limits and we can keep a whole back catalogue on the server. And I, and I, I think I think sometimes you can go like ten days without having to listen to us. Too. Yeah, exactly. I mean, Christ, if you're watching this episode like the day after, sorry, listening to the episode the day after listening to the old episode, holy fuck. You know, uh, that's that's an awful lot of us. But anyway, uh, right, you can contact us, monkey at gmail.com, at monkey at Ian Loring, at DudeFoz. Um, anything else to say, Mark? Uh, let, let's get this shit started. Boom. Right, okay, so uh, let's get a clip from Django Unchained, and then we shall dissect Quentin Tarantino's latest. Here we go. Rituals are you people for what to take part in. What? Like, for instance... What if we were to walk into the saloon here, sit down at a table, order a drink, and drink it? Would the authorities frown on that? Hell yeah, they're going to frown. Then what part would they find the most offensive? All of it. I could be walking in the saloon, I could be sitting down at no chair at no table, I could be drinking no drink, and I definitely can't be sharing no drink with no white man in public. So if you and I were to do these things, that would be considered enough of an infraction for the saloon keeper to go and get the sheriff? You bet your sweet ass they get the sheriff. In that case, Django, after you. Okay, so Django Unchained, obviously written and directed by Quentin Tarantino, uh, sees Jamie Foxx play uh, the eponymous Django, who has to free his wife, Broomhilda, played by Kerry Washington, from the evil clutches of Calvin Candy, played by Leonardo DiCaprio. Mark, what did you think of Django Unchained? Uh Django Unchained, well, it's, it, it's been one of my most eagerly anticipated movies um, since, I would say, the late 90s when Tarantino said at one point, I want to make, at some point in my career, I'd like to make a war film and I'd like to make a western. And as soon as he said that, I was very much like, I, wa- I, I want to see Tarantino do a spaghetti western, which essentially... You know, this is what um, Tarantino done with Django Unchained. This isn't a, it isn't just a western. This is a spaghetti western. Um, he's gone for that that specific genre of the western uh, canon. He finished his last film, uh, Inglorious Bastards, which is a wonderfully brilliant film. Um, he finished it back with the line, "I think this might be my masterpiece," mm. um, which is an obvious self-referential nod from Tarantino because he's a hugely confident filmmaker. Um, I actually think Django Unchained might be his masterpiece. Wow. Um, okay. I, I was, I expected to like it because it's a Tarantino film. I expected to like it because the people that were involved. Um, I, I thought the, it, it, it is almost split into a, a three act structure, uh, which often Tarantino films do have this, this, these kind of blocks. Uh, you've very much got the, I mean, what we're going to say now is uh, this is quite going to be quite spoiler heavy uh, because um, there's not a lot of ways you can talk about how great this film is without going into spoilers. However, what I will also say is we'll try and keep some of the major spoilers out of it because I think we can do that. But also, you kind of know what's going to happen in this film from the start of it. So, you know, we're not going to really be throwing any big twists out there. But, um, yeah, so you've got the first half, which I thought for the first hour and a bit was one of the best black comedies I think I have ever seen. I haven't laughed 
this much uh, a film since when I saw uh, 20 on Jump Street in the in the cinemas, and I haven't laughed this much at a film with the exception of 20 on Jump Street for a number of years. It is so there are so many scenes that just bounce with this this unbelievably quick dialogue, uh, which we've all the reason why we all love Tarantino is because of this bouncing dialogue, but it just happens so fast here. Um, then you've got two great leads in. Uh, Christoph Waltz, who, yes, you could argue he's very similar in this as he is to Inglourious Bastards, but so what? Jimmy Fox plays this great kind of stoic character that starts to sort of, you know, grow in himself and in his intelligence throughout the film. You've got DiCaprio looking like he's having fucking just shitloads of fun, and the same for Samuel L. Jackson, who looks like he's playing just such a stereotype, practical cartoon character. Um, I just, I thought this was an utterly, wonderfully enjoyable and brilliant sort of often laugh out loud, and then he does pull you down with some great punches occasionally. The gore's brilliant. I just thought it was absolutely stunning. Um, yeah, fair enough. Um, I like Django Unchained the more and more I think about it and I really fucking liked it when I actually first finished watching it um for me it's not Tarantino's best um and I don't think it ever will elevate to that in my eyes because um I think Inglorious Bastards may may be one of a very very few perfect movies um there is not a single bit of Inglorious Bastards I would change for anything. Um, and I, I really did realise that what, uh, re-watching Bastards this week. Um, but, and I also, uh, I also do say that I think Pulp Fiction, it, it, in t- just in terms of how clever the writing is and the structure of it is, uh, I, I, I'm also more impressed by Pulp Fiction. However, um, it, there's still no bones about the fact that, that I mean, Django Unchained is still obviously a five star film. Um, and the thing is, it's it's a film where I had problems with it during it. But then later on, those problems were kind of redressed. And uh, I think a key one for me there, it, it was actually Django himself uh, with Jamie Foxx, who I I thought was almost underplaying it to a fault um, at first. But then, and, you know, I mean, the the fact is the shootout about three quarters of the way in would be the end of any other film. And the fact that it then goes on for a half hour, which I think is why some people have complained about its length. uh, But that half hour is Django. Like, I mean, um, Bradley Porter at Mr. Bontacode on Twitter, um, uh, we, we, we both know, I'm sure many of you listening to, it, uh, to this know him as well, on, at least on Twitter, if not in real life. Um, he said that basically the half hour is a superhero origin and or like the entire film is. But then he becomes the superhero in the last half hour. And I agree with that. And it's a real pleasure. The last half hour. And it sees Jamie Foxx basically justify why he starred in this film. Because, mm. like, I, I, I think it's clever how, Chris, at first, Christoph Waltz and then Leonardo DiCaprio, like, completely dominate the screen. But then, especially during the DiCaprio section, that's because Django has to keep his shit contained. 
for because of the ruse. You know, yeah. he, he has to underplay it. He has to not be the main character of that section. Otherwise, the actual story, the integrity of the story structure would collapse. Um, which I think, it, it, you know, and it is Tarantino, who is just a ridiculously clever screenwriter playing with the audience in that way and almost playing with people who look at the, his films with a critical eye. And uh, I got a great deal of joy from that. Yeah, I think that, like you say, it's to say the film is called Django Unchained and Django is the title character and he's in it from the start and pretty much in almost every scene yeah. really uh, there are very few scenes that aren't either about Django or uh, containing Django from, you know, he's pretty much on screen almost all the time um, but there is an argument to say that, um, that Christoph Waltz could be considered a one of the leading characters uh, in the film because he's in it so much but then he's not in, you know he's not in it as much let's say the last sort of half an hour he's not in it and, at all the last half hour yeah and you've killed. got um, <laughs> and you've got um, DiCaprio um, isn't in sort of like the first hour really um, and then just appears but he's so big in mm. that hour he's in it for maybe an hour himself and he's so big in it, it it's, it's unreal but like you said Tarantino's writing is just this is uh, a filmmaker at the absolute uh, peak of his powers uh, as a, a writer and as a director. He's so on with this. You know, the direction is, is has so much verve and vigour and just he's just has so much panache. And the writing is so quick and so intelligent and it never panders down. It never has to sort of take time to explain to you. And it's not um, Tarantino's been kind of accused often of having these, having what what he does is he has a a monologue scene, an in, obviously an, an indulgent monologue scene followed by a set piece, followed by an indulgent monologue scene, and there's none of that here. It, there is such a flaw, and uh, he treats it. This is definitely a genre film for him. He treats it in that way, mixing the musics together and the different um, filters with uh, the way it's shot. And the fact that there is, you know, you've got little title cards appear every so often and you've got the, there's a little montage of them being bounty hunters uh, with a song about Django, you know, like you used to get in the in Spaghetti Westerns, and not just the, the Spaghetti Westerns that most people know, the Spaghetti Westerns that, that a lot of people know, that, you know, and Tarantino probably knows 10, 15 Spaghetti Westerns that, you know, a lot of, a lot of even complete genre fans have never probably seen, that he's probably found somewhere. Uh, and he, he picks from these, but he, he forges just this absolutely wonderful film um, where you've got all these characters pop up and they're brilliant. I mean, there's a whole, the whole um, sort of Klansman-esque ride with um, Don Johnson and Jonah Hill there, and they're all talking about the bags on the heads. I mean, it takes absolute balls yeah. to, to to make a scene like that and to make you know to make fun of these people without pointing and going look how evil and how horrible these are he's not pointing in it and pointing at them saying 
look, you know, look how bad their world view is. Look how bad they are for being essentially clansmen without calling them clansmen. But it's like he's been sat round talking to somebody going, you know, when when clansmen used to ride off to go and, you know, hang, you know, a, you know, a, a black dude. Mm. You know, how did they see out yeah. of those things? And it's like you start, I'm going to write an entire scene about how ridiculous this is and the fact that you start feeling sorry for the guy who's made them. Yeah. Because he's getting pissed off. And I was just, I, I was in tears of laughter. And not a lot of other people seemed to be. No, no, no. I mean, my, my, my screening had a lot of people laughing, actually, at that bit. But, um... Mine, mine had not a lot of people laughing. Uh, and, and I was, I, I was full-blown, like, hysterics laughing at that. Um, I thought it was it was just a, a wonderful five minutes of just absolute arrogance and genius. And there was a lot of scenes in this film where you're thinking, I can't believe he's doing this. And, you know, a lot of people dealing with this type of material in this type of way and dealing with racism and slavery and, you know, prejudice and all, and all these ways was just wonderful. And you've got... Um, with. Uh, Christoph Waltz's character, um, King Schultz, uh, he's such a wonderful character because he seems to truly, uh, you know, be appalled by the idea of of, of slavery, um, and Django almost seems a little bit confused at the fact that this guy's treating him exactly like an equal, mm. um, and. You know, he's kind of explaining, he's saying, "Look, I am going to have to take advantage of you, but I don't really want to." Yeah, and, yeah. And it's it's brilliant. What I was the one thing I was I was a little bit kind of almost worried about going in was this is the first Tarantino film um, without you know um, Sally Menke. Sally Menke. Yeah. Um, so and with it being as long as it was, you kind of think, well, is this because Tarantino's got somebody there? Who we can kind of say, no, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this. Um, and you know, when, you, when you look back over sort of Fred Raskin's you know, TV, it, it, it's not a, a hugely, um, it's not hugely impressive. Um, like, I'm not saying impressive, it's not a, a, a vast CV. Uh, you know, it, the, the notable things are the, the, the Fast and Furious films that he's done. But it, he does seem to be able to, you know, capture sort of the feel that Tarantino is going for and you know he he chops it together nicely and it has a nice sort of flow and a nice ebb to it and it, yes it's it, it's two hours sort of 40 odd minutes but it, it doesn't feel sort of two hours 40 minutes it feels epic but that first hour and a bit just kind of breezes by uh, it feels I looked at my watch and I thought it had been on about sort of half an hour and I was an hour and a quarter in yeah um, so I, I think if a film's good, it doesn't matter how long it is. Yeah, um, totally. It's only if a film's bad, it's two and a half hours that it starts to feel that that length. Um, you know, you could have a shit and boring film be ninety minutes, um, but in the same way as you can have an outstanding film be two hours forty minutes. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think, for me, I, I mean, I think it will go quicker the second time round, just because, again, um, like I said earlier on, that final, like, that shootout, I was actually expecting the film to end at that shootout, 
Um, so I was I was rather surprised. Uh, but I, I was I, I was glad because it would have been a lesser film without that last half hour. But I think if you go in on a rewatch knowing that's where it's going, I think it's going to flow a lot better. I mean, if I did have like one complaint, I mean, the editing felt completely like any like Tarantino's like later period work. I mean, it it it, it felt like the same edit like editor worked on it as in Glorious Bastards. To be yeah, honest, yeah, to be honest, yeah. it just it felt like that. If I did have one complaint, I would say that maybe, maybe, maybe it could have done with a little bit of tightening up between the the section where they meet Calvin Candy and when they arrive at Candyland. Um, I it it just felt like there were. I mean, there was one particular moment where um, Django uh, got a bit bolshy with um, uh, with Walton Goggins. Uh, where and, and like I think he ended up like uh, like pushing someone's horse over or something. Yeah. That, um. That I think in it like we get the fact that these guys don't trust Django. You know already it just in the inherent this is Mississippi in that mm. time. Yeah. yeah. It, it did like I, I mean like it it's it's more interesting seeing Samuel L. Jackson's reaction to Django on a horse, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Which is fucking. I could watch Samuel L. Jackson react incredulously to Django on a horse as a gif for eternity and not get bored. It, it, I mean, it, let, let, well, let's let's sort of um, I don't know. Um, let's, let's use the Louis C.K. thing of saying there is a, a a lot of use of the word nigger in this film, yeah. um, and a lot of people have become pissed off about it. Um, and it, it sort of strikes me as a little bit like, well, there would have been a lot of use of that word. And I think a lot of this is playing back the fact that Tarantino has used this word a lot in his film. That, um, that is the reason why people are complaining. I agree. Sorry, go on. Yeah. yeah. And, and the thing is, is Tarantino has used it as a derogatory term in this film, but never as a, never as a flippant derogatory term. He's always used it um, as a derogatory, when you use as a derogatory term, you've got the the meanness behind it. You've not. It's not like Tarantino himself is saying it's okay to use this. Yeah. As as a derogatory term, he's often used it. Um, for instance, the, the big one is um, true romance. You know, there's a big scene between Dennis Hopper and uh, Chris Walker where the term is used repeatedly. I would say possibly more during that one scene than this entire fucking film, by the way. Um, and I think that is what it is. And, you know, you get Spike Lee comes out and, um, and pipes up, as he always does, because he seems to have issues with Tarantino. And, let's face it, Spike Lee's angry because Tarantino's still making good films and Spike Lee can't make a good film anymore. Um, but I, I was actually surprised that I, I expected it to be a little bit more I think people are getting worked about nothing. Mm-hmm. But, yes, the wondrousness of Samuel Jackson looking so dishevelled and so surprised and kind of pointing, going and sort of screaming, what is that? What? what who's, who's that nigger on the horse? Yeah. And it's just, it, it's a wonderful scene. And, and talking about having to burn the sheets in the, in the big house <laughs> and stuff like that, it, it's... But yeah. it, it, it's absolutely mind blowing. But then he's so fucking evil for like every single other scene. 
know, yeah, but it's... It's the fact that um, you've got Leonardo DiCaprio, who has grown, whose character has, has grown up having all these slaves and seeing um, black people as simply um, a monetary value to him. Um, but he seems to have a genuine affection for Stephen Samuel Jackson's character. It seems like this is, you know, he, he, he treats him, you know, almost like like he's his grandfather or something like that. Uh, and you never get the feeling that he could turn on him. Uh, he does seem to have this kind of disaffection for him. Uh, and Samuel Jackson seems to have this affection back for him so much that um, he, he seems to have very much become almost, you know, um, he's very much become his kind of um, ward almost. Um, he's disassociated himself from being part of the the slave staff, let's say. Yeah, yeah. And he, he's very much more. He he seems to see himself as more as part of the family than anything else. And and that's and DiCaprio treats him like that basically as well. He has a couple of moments with him, but it, 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 like when they, you know, when Stephen says that these guys are up to shit. Like he like DiCaprio, like he gives him a little bit of like, what the fuck are you talking about? But thirty seconds later, he is convinced. He, he, oh yeah, he absolutely believes. There's a great scene there where the only time where you think he's going to turn his way, he says, "Can I wear you in the kitchen? It's, it's about the cake and all this lot." And he's saying, "Well, where?" And you can see, you know, DiCaprio's character kind of get a little bit kind of antsy, but yeah. then Jackson just kind of whispers in his ear, "Meet me in the library." Yeah, yeah. And it, and it's straight away, there's no what is it? it? He knows right. He needs to tell me something. Yeah. So, like you say, he straight away goes bang, and then you've got Samuel Jackson's reaction um, to the moment when, um, obviously, big spoilers here, when uh, Christopher Walt shoots him, uh, which genuinely took me by surprise. Uh-huh. Um, you know, it, there, you know, you can see he's he's genuinely upset. You know, this guy who he's cared for and you know but essentially it's the guy who owns him you know it's the family who owns him um but i just thought that every character seemed to be completely on board with what tarantino was trying to do there was there are there were a couple of things that that niggled me slightly um and a main one being um the fact that dicaprio is this rich landowner, and yet he's had all his teeth blackened up for it. Yet um, Django has these bright, shiny white teeth. It's a fair point, yeah. Um, and it, it's a little bit like, it, I, I don't know, it seems like Tarantino, it, it's something that usually he wouldn't miss. <laughs> and, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. But yeah, I mean, I'm... I'm with Jamie Foxx, what I've always had this thing is, is I don't like Jamie Foxx. I think he's an arrogant prick. But he's a fucking good actor. Yeah, he is. Um, yeah, I just, I think this is just... Like I said, I, I could... There are a couple of moments where I think it, it maybe... Um, maybe kind of could have... Could have lost a little bit of length in certain parts. It didn't need... Uh, a, a couple of bits, but I was I was perfectly happy with the with the length etc. I mean, apparently, uh, like Tarantino had to kind of rush the editing to make the release date and make the awards consideration screenings. So and 
I I can sense that. It it, it does it doesn't feel quite as tight as you expect a Tarantino film generally to feel, even though like they, they do tend to be long it does feel like every single second is needed. Like I was saying with Bastards, like I would not change a single second of Inglorious Bastards. I would maybe change a little bit of Django, even though I'd be more than willing to actually like rewatch it before I put my flag down and say that. However, I still feel confident enough giving it a five out of five because it just pushes all the right buttons. What I'd say is, if you'd seen this um, last year, would it have been your number one film of last year? No. Where would you would you put it in your top ten? Yes, my number ten was Argo, and I like it more than Argo. Um, I would say. It would probably be around six or five. You see, it, it would probably be around two or three for me. Um, I'd have to give it another watch to see if it would take uh, grave, the, uh, grave. I watched The Grey again um, last week um, and liked it even more the second time. Oh, uh, and by the way, I watched the the, the post credits bit and didn't bother me one bit. Fair play. Uh, so that was just like that was just some sort of housekeeping for pretty yeah, good. Yeah, 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 totally. Okay. Um, but no, I, I just, I mean, oh, I, I'm a little bit astonished uh, that Tarantino didn't get a, um, a, a nod for best director. I think this is a, a hugely, um, I can say, I'm, it, it's almost um ridiculous in, in, in the ways that he takes it, the ways he goes with it. It's so I've said it a couple of times, it is so confident and so precise. He, he he doesn't miss every beat that's there is there for a reason and that's that's that, that comes across so wonderfully. Uh I I definitely think um Christoph Waltz is going to pick up another Academy Award for it. Just because he's so he's such a captivating actor to watch um, he absolutely has you in the palm of his hand from the start and then it's wonderful watching all these other people so I loved watching uh, Michael Parks turn up essentially as the same character he plays in um, in Death Proof and Dust Till Dawn Sheriff McGraw uh, I think yeah. his name is El McGraw yeah he, he essentially he's the same character to the point of where he wears his hat in the same way yeah. and he does everything like that um, I'm not going to cover. I'm not going to cover the Tarantino um, cameo because I think we've got a question about a Tarantino cameo, so that'll appear later. What I do think, I think we could see um, an extended cut come out on Blu-ray of this film. I think there's a lot. I think Tarantino's cut a lot out of this film. Um, for instance, you've got Bruce Stern. I don't believe he turned up and got all made up for literally 15 seconds. Which role was he? He was the uh, he was uh, Django's original owner, um, Django and Brimhilda's um, owner. You know the one who's splitting them up. Oh God! Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just like you know, the, the like the tight shot of his face saying, "Sell him and sell him cheap." 
Yeah. Uh, okay, fair enough. That's it. And also, as well, they, they seem to make a point of, um, of Zoe Bell having her face covered. Yeah, that was actually and then never. Yeah, and then never actually... You expected some kind of big reveal that it was, you know, Zoe Bell or something. Um, and then that never happened. I think that, you know, because Tarantino, you know, he... You know, he, he gets final cut on his films. It's, it's something he does. Uh, I, I'm curious as to think, like you say, that it was, you know, maybe if it was wrong, maybe he'd, he'd go back and look at it and say, actually, do you know what? I'd, I'd like to do this with it. I'd like to put this into it. And maybe not do, maybe not do a director's cut, but do an alternative cut. Yeah. And, and sort of play around with putting a bit more into it and seeing, seeing if it worked. But, I, I wouldn't be surprised if we got that because I just think there was there was a few characters where you thought they are they seem to be trimmed down quite a lot. Well, I know the um, uh, there's a comic book series that's come out of it that's based on the original screenplay, so that would be interesting to see. Oh yes, I'll be definitely definitely purchasing that. Because I read about it must have been an. an uh, maybe like the first half hour of screen times worth of the screenplay when it was leaked, uh, but mm. then I kind of stopped myself because I thought actually, you know what? I just want to see this at, like like in motion. And uh, there was, I mean, there was stuff that was moved about for sure. Um, the uh, like the the kind of the training sequence, I suppose. Um, I I can't help but think I remember it was earlier in in the screenplay. Uh, that that they did that, so I mean, it would be interesting to kind of go back and read the comic and see what was cut out now as well. But um, yeah, I think is that about it with Django. I, I think it is. It's one of those films where I think because we both seem to to enjoy it so much, it's it's a lot easier and a lot quicker to kind of talk about praise uh, rather than stripping it apart. Uh, what I will say is, is that. Tarantino recently sort of been doing interviews here has kind of said that um, that he, he sees himself sort of maybe making only ten films, mm. uh, which would give him a lot two films left to go. Like that, yeah. Um, I I really hope that's just Tarantino being Tarantino, mm. um, that that he that he does that he decides to keep making films because. If his last two films are anything to go by, I mean, all of his films, I adore every single one of his films, but um, the the sheer um, brilliance and um, sort of bravado of his past two films is magnificent, and he just seems to be going from strength to strength. Uh, I think Django and I will watch it. I mean, I'll watch it again next week. Um, and I, I absolutely adored it. I thought it's one of the funniest films I've seen in a long time. It, it's one of the. It, it's a true um, testament to the western sort of canon. It, it falls very well within that. It hits all the right tropes. Um, I just, I just thought it was absolutely spectacular. Absolutely, and uh, one other thing as well. I'm actually going to claim when I said that. Um uh, Brad was saying about him turning into uh, like a superhero. I actually just reread my review on Letterboxd that I actually like wrote up on Friday. So this was before Brad actually said that. And I said, Jamie Foxx's Django essentially turns into a badass superhero who can make horses dance by the end. So I, I just want to say, uh, Brad, I got there first. Damn you. Um, yeah. 
<laughs> uh, but yeah, no, I, uh, uh, I agree. I'm very, very, very keen on a rewatch at some point. Uh, it'll probably be Blu-ray, but um, yeah, very, very keen on a rewatch. And uh, yeah, we both very much enjoyed it. Are you tired of film podcasts where the hosts exist in a constant blissful state of agreement? I mean, the main, the main characters are two of the dullest main characters I have ever encountered in any film. Well, you're in luck. Let me introduce you to Chinstroker and Punter. One is an ex-film student with a penchant for David Lynch and art cinema. The other is a man on the street. Listen in perplexed and horrified terror as we tear apart one film a week. It just really is. It's isn't. not visually striking. No. That's just, just getting confirmation. It's just dealing, that's the third time though. I mean, am I, this is on. You can find us at chinstrokerversuspunter.podomatic.com. So come and share the victory. If you could any man in film, who would it be and why? My answer is Lance Henriksen. Oh. You, you wouldn't tell. He looks like somebody. <laughs> he looks like somebody who can keep a secret. Do you find yourself looking for a different type of genre podcast? Do you find yourself on the weekends wondering when you will find that one film that might change your life? Well, then maybe you should check out The Gentleman's Guide to Midnight Cinema with your host Big Willie and the Samurai. Bringing class to the trash since 1977 and rocking the house. You can find The Gentleman at ggtmc.com. Class to the trash. So, um, right, let's get into our one old one you, shall we? Yes. Okie dokie. So, uh, do you want to start uh, start us off, Mark, with uh, one old or one new? Your choice. Uh, I'm going to start off with uh, one new. Now, this is a film that I, I watched, and I started watching it as, as a rewatch, uh, because I, in my brain I thought I had seen it. Um, and you know, you had that film, it's, it's an old film, it's a film from the, um, from 1990. Mm. You know, you had those students where you think, I've seen that, yeah, and you talk to people about it. Yeah. Um, and I, I've spent years talking to people about it, and then I actually started watching it. And the film is another 48 hours, and I'm a huge Walter Hill fan, um, I adore the guy, and I love 48 hours, and I love, uh, if you just spoke to me last week, and I said, I love another 48 hours, it's a brilliant film. And I started watching it, and I got about sort of 25 minutes in, and I thought, I haven't seen this. Mm. I know what happens. I know how the film works. But I thought, not only, you know, I remember pretty much any film I've seen, you know, and I, I haven't seen I don't remember any of this happening. So it, it, it was completely new to me, and I, I adored it, but completely new to me this the, the fact that I hadn't actually seen this film uh, and it was wonderful because I went in there thinking that I'm watching this film that I've, that I've seen and uh, it wasn't it was completely new to me um, it's you know it, it teams up um, Nick Nolte's Jack Cates again um, with uh, Reggie Hammond Eddie Murphy's crook character Nick Nolte's sort of the um, San Francisco cop um, your, your typical kind of 80s cop you know he doesn't do things by the rules um, and 
he's chasing uh, what he thinks is a big drug dealer around the area called the Iceman. Um, but he's the only person who believes that he exists. Um, at the start of the film, he's chasing down a lead and he, he shoots a guy. And then you've got um, basically the internal affairs kind of moving on him because they can't find this gun that um, Jack says he's been pulled on him. And he basically is about to be sort of pulled in and taken off the force for manslaughter. Um, but when he's sort of searching uh, around these people, he finds a picture of Eddie Murphy's Reggie um, and decides that he's going to go and talk to Reggie because he thinks that Reggie might know who the Iceman is. Uh, Reggie's back in prison and, of course, from leaving over from the last film, Reggie's left him uh, left Jack a lot of money for him to look after uh, and then when he gets out he's going to come pick it up um, Jack basically tells him that if he helps him he'll give him the money if he doesn't he won't and then essentially you get the first film again but still just as amusing and just as entertaining um, and what this kind of it highlighted for me is, is one what a great sort of filmmaker uh, Walter Hill was you know you it's easy to get lost with Walter Hill, sort of the films like um, Driver and Warriors, Streets of, um, of Fire that we both um, adore. Uh, but you forget that during sort of like the mid-80s to sort of early 90s, he actually made some kind of quite big sort of Hollywood films with the um, 48 Hours films and Red Heat. And, you know, it also makes you look back and say, fucking hell, you know, that was the Eddie Murphy you got then. You know, when you got him in stuff like this and Trading Places and uh, Coming to America and the Beverly Hills Cop films. And you, know, you go through all those, there's just not really a bad film in them all. Uh, and now, you know, look at, look at what Eddie Murphy we get now. We just get, I'm going to play every character in this film, be them male, female, fat, thin, computer generated or what. And... It is just the biggest loss of sort of mojo, I think, possibly in cinematic history. He goes from being so brilliant in these types of films to being so bad in everything now. Um, but yeah, I, I was um, pleasantly surprised that I hadn't seen this film, but uh, absolutely adored it. And it's the type of great kind of late 80s, early 90s action sort of comedy film sort of great entertainment book that we you know that we're starting to get back a little bit uh, now you know it became sort of very unfashionable to do these films sort of in the late 90s and all the way through the the 90s it was these films were were seen as being something that that happened and you know that weren't very good and obviously I mean, it's good that now we'll start trying to kind of get back to those you know i don't want to say middle of the road but those kind of mid-budget, pure entertainment films. You know, they're not there to have a message, but they're not there to be temporal blockbusters. They're there to film to have out in April or in October. You know, yeah. they're not there as the summer blockbusters and they're not award season films. They're almost filler made now. I mean, this was made in 1990 and it cost just shy of $40 million and it made well over $150 million. Uh, now this would be like a fifty, sixty million dollar film, and it'd be expected to make around the same money as, as this made. And 
it's good that we're starting to get these films again. Uh, I, I absolutely loved it, and I'll be watching the uh, Fight Hours films and another Fight Hours again and again. I've never seen them. I, I need to. Have you not? Uh, no, I need to. Um, I need to uh, act on that. Mick Nolte and Eddie Murphy is quite the combination, but I don't know. They, they, they are a blind spot for me, actually. Yeah, I mean, this, this, the first one's better, I'll say. Yeah. But this is just equally better. I mean, it, the great thing is, this is, um, you know, it, 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 it's two hours long. You know, it, 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 you could watch both of them comfortably, back to back, in a night, and have a real sort of, you know, couple of beers. They're, they're, they're a great Saturday night, couple of beers, and a pizza film. You know, they're, you could watch back to back, start at nine o'clock, finish at one in the morning, Bang, you're fucking done. Great films. Uh, they're not to the level of the first two Family Hills Cop films. They're not. They don't quite have that kind of that zip and that um, comedic flow. And Eddie Murphy, you know, he, he isn't as on with this character as he is on with Axel Foley. Um, but it's almost, you know, this character is far enough removed from uh, Axel Foley, even though the films are very similar. That the character is very different that you know they could be moved away from that mm-hmm. however what I will say as well is you should watch another 40 hours because you get to hear just literally the, the score is a James Horner score and the score for another 48 hours is basically exactly the same as the score for Commando oh really like Tribal Dragons I mean I, I mean honestly I'm not joking it is Virtually the same score. Hmm. Um, you will when you watch it. Honestly, the first thing you we, when the credits are ro- the opening credits are rolling, I expect a tweet off you that just says "fucking hell" because <laughs> that, that's what I was like. I, so it, I was like, "Oh my god!" This, hang on a minute, it, is this James Horner? And I'm sort of waiting for it. Comes like, "Holy shit, dude!" Yeah. It's the fucking same score. I mean, these were like, like a year or so apart. Um, I mean, let's have a look. This was made in 1990, and Commander was 85, so five years apart. Fucking that, that somehow makes it worse. Um, mm. So, yeah, they are so similar. That's pretty funny. I, yeah, I, I, I will... Um, I will fucking try to uh, actually wa- uh, watch these at some point. I don't know, there's more and more films that are kind of piling up and with us moving in like the, the next couple of months it's, I don't know man, it's going to be it's going to be hard just to keep up with the fucking cinema releases, let alone anything else. <laughs> well, what, what, what we might have to do at some point is, is maybe drop a cinema and just do like a fucking a retro review. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, fucking <laughs> Right, cool. Uh, you name us one of your old or one new? Um, okay, I'll do my one new. Um, and I will talk about... Okay, yeah, I may as well talk about this. Um, so, uh, I, I went to see Vertigo on the big screen on Thursday. Uh, that, that isn't my new, I have seen Vertigo. Uh, it is one of my like favorite films of all time frankly and um so i was in a hitchcocky kind of mood but um instead of you know just watching another hitchcock film instead i watched hitchcock uh so this is the um the anthony hopkins starring uh hitchcock 
kind of biopicy thing uh, based on Stephen Rebello's uh, excellent book, uh, Alfred Hitchcock in the Making of Psycho. Um, well, I say it's based on that. It's not really at all, even though it's credited as such. Um, so, yeah, basically, you've got the, the making of Psycho and, um, you know, so it, the film starts with North by Northwest just premiering and, um, and uh, you know, Hitchcock wanting to basically do something different. And he kind of finds a kind of a lusty pleasure in, in reading uh, Robert Bloch's original uh, original book, which obviously is inspired by um, Ed Gein's murders. Um, but and so it's it's kind of uh, kind of talking about the making of Psycho, but it got kind of in the background uh, as such, at least for the middle third of the film, which becomes a really kind of just boring melodrama about Hitchcock and his wife uh, uh, Alma, and, uh, played by Helen Mirren in this, and uh, the difficulties of of their marriage, which are kind of um, uh, made worse by the presence of Danny Houston's character, who I, I, I'm sure he must have existed in real life. But um, I was expecting, because I'd read Alfred Hitchcock in The Making of Psycho, maybe I had um, different expectations from what I should I should have done, even though you know it is based on it's supposed to be based on that book. Um, I was expecting this film to be kind of like based in truth, based on fact. Uh, whereas like um, the girl, uh, the Toby Jones starring Hitchcock uh, film from uh, of a couple of months back, which was one of my worst films of last year, blatantly was the crazed imaginings of Tippi Hendren, who was like an incredibly subjective view of Alfred Hitchcock based on her. Uh, I mean, the girl, like, it, it is known, okay, Hitchcock had a penchant for blonde women, but I'm pretty sure he didn't stalk them, try to make out with them constantly, and generally make guttural noises whenever he looked at them. Um, with this, it, it, it does go into that somewhat, except Scarlett Johansson's portrayal of Janet Leigh is basically, she worked with Hitchcock, he was nice to her, she was nice to him, they got on famously. Uh, and, I mean, it's 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 not a whitewash, because you've got Vera Miles played by Jessica Biel, and, and, like, their testy relationship as well. But, and that stuff's kind of interesting in a kind of a gossip mag kind of a way. But, you've you, I mean, you've got this thing where, like, it's Helen Mirren having a will-she-won't-she she cheat on Hitchcock with Danny Houston's character, which... By all accounts, Alma Hitchcock was a ridiculously, almost to the point of insanity, like, dedicated to her man, loving wife, who just let Hitchcock kind of get away with all this kind of stuff and never re really apparently had eyes for anybody else. He's not, I don't think he's mentioned in the book at all, and it almost feels like he's a fabrication for, uh, of, of this film. And it's, it's terrible. It's a terrible, terrible subplot. And I mean, you, you, and you've got Hitchcock um, kind of learning the error of his ways and loving his wife in this kind of bizarre, like TV movie thing about a man like rediscovering his love for his wife. But in a film which is supposed to be about Hitchcock making Psycho, uh, it's it's baffling. It's it's really, really baffling. And it's such a shame because the making of Psycho, I mean, the book, Alfred Hitchcock and the Making of Psycho, would not make for a four-quadrant demographic hit because it's a niche making of a film book. 
But for people who read stuff like that, it's a great read. It, you know, it's trouble with the censors, trouble with the cast, trouble with the crew. Uh, you know, the, the problems of getting the production done in the first place. Because the, the great kind of dichotomy of all the studios wanting to work with Alfred Hitchcock, but not wanting to make Psycho because of the material. You know, I, I mean, that, that stuff is really, really interesting. But you have got this kind of like almost producer mandated. We need to get some relationship trauma stuff going on in here. So let's have Helen Mirren having a will she won't we, she with Danny Houston. And it is terrible. Um, so there is stuff in it which is of value. But the film looks I mean, it's directed by Sasha Gervaisi, who directed Anvil, the story of Anvil. Um, so it, it's his first time like. Uh, fiction like well based on kind of kind of fictional feature and it looks like a tv film the product i don't know what the production budget was but it looks really really cheap it uh, wasn't it wasn't a lot i think the production was about sort of eight million yeah okay fair enough but i mean like it's interesting that the cinematographer is jeff cronenworth who is david fincher's cinematographer you look at david fincher's films and you look at this and it's apples and oranges yeah. Sorry? Jesus Christ, it is. Yeah. What did he convince someone like that to make this? Yeah, ex ex exactly. You know, it, it's, it's, it's bizarre. It looks ugly. And frankly, that is not Jeff Cronenworth because he does not make ugly films, at least with well, David I mean, Fincher. Well, I mean, you, no, I mean, his, even his filmography isn't massive. He's only made a couple of films without Fincher. Um, but, you know, I mean, the, the films he's made without Fincher, one hour photo. Which I didn't like, but it looks fucking great. Yeah, it does. K19, yeah. The Widowmaker, a terrible film, but looks brilliant. Uh, and Down With Love, which is nowhere near as shit as it should have been. Yeah, quite. I, I mean, with Down With Love, they got that era. Of, oh, it looks gorgeous. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Th this is not a very good looking film, you know, and I, I do believe that's uh, that is basically Gervaisi. But uh, yeah, the, the, it just, it sh this should have been, and the girl should have been, well, maybe not the girl because it was based on the rantings of Tippi Hendren, but um, this should have been better because the source material was there. And frankly, you know, why introduce uh, let's broaden this out element in the first place? Because in the end of the day, the film is still called Hitchcock, Hitchcock. and it's still about the making of Hitchcock. Right? I mean, like that's the the backbone of it. So I, it's just this film. It was never going to be a broad film anyway. So why even introduce those elements? Just keep it film geeky and have Anthony Hopkins, who um, I can't remember who it was on Twitter, but somebody said that he goes a bit Hannibal Lectory, which he, he kind of does, which is a bit weird. But I, I, I thought he was fine in this. And the makeup is great. I mean, like it. I mean, this has been nominated for Best Makeup Oscar. Absolutely fair enough, because the motherfucker is unrecognisable. You know, and I, I, but, I mean, I, I, I think he works fairly well as as Hitchcock and Helen Mirren is good as well uh, you know and I mean like uh, James Darcy is Anthony Perkins even though he isn't in it half as much as you think he's going to is good Ralph Macchio is good in his one scene as the screenwriter you know and it just it, it, it the constituent elements are there but it's felled by a like a bizarre focus on something that you just don't give a fuck about and, and, and I mean, it's it's a real, real disappointment. It's not as bad as the girl, because the girl was a piece of fucking shit. But it's really not. It's still very far from a recommend, even for people interested in the material. Go read the book instead. Yeah, I mean, I was 
I'm, I've not seen it yet, um, but I have, I, I have, been, I, I think I've said this before. I have massive issues um, with, um, well, I can't remember his name. I have massive issues with Hopkins. Um, I, I think that I, I think he's nowhere near as talented as he thinks he is, and as people seem to claim he is. Uh, for me, essentially, he's been playing a different version of Hannibal Lecter for the past nearly 30 years. Um, sorry, 20, uh, past 20 years. And I, 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 I sort of looked at it, and he seems to have, I don't know, a little bit like, I was put off by, for instance, it's going to seem like a strange fucking one to connect. I was put off a little bit by um, Morgan Freeman being cast as uh, in Invictus, because it just seemed so obvious, and they... He seemed very arrogant about playing Nelson Mandela. Like, it was the role he was born to play. And I, he just, with this, you see, it's like, Hopkins like, yes, well, of course I was going to be Hitchcock. And he, he just seems to have that that air of arrogance that Hopkins always has really bugged me. Um, so, I'm a little bit... I, when I do watch which I will watch it, I'm going into it with very low expectations because, it, frankly, everything I've seen of it, it looks like a fucking mess. Um, and you've got a lot of actors who seem to be in it um, just to be in it, rather than actually in it because it's going to be a decent film or anything like that, just to be in what is perceived as being a as close to a Hitchcock biopic as we'll get. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's Scarlett Johansson in, in her generic Scarlett Johansson um, role that she seems to just do now, where... She's just in it because she thinks it sounds interesting and it makes her look a little bit kind of, you know, like she's picking her films carefully. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. You're not. It's fucking obvious. Uh, same uh, with Jessica um, Beale. Um, it's a very similar thing with that. So I, I will watch it at some point, but I'm uh, watching it with a lot of sort of trepidation. Yeah, I mean, that, that's that's definitely the way to go, to go in, really. And, I mean, maybe if you know that it's not really um uh it's it's not really what you think it's going to be then maybe you'll enjoy it more and maybe so um that was hitchcock but uh let's go into your one old buddy my my one old is a 2010 comedy that I seem to be the only person on the planet actually enjoyed this film. Um, my one old is uh, I watched this because there's now rumblings of a sequel. Uh, it's Hot Tub Time Machine, uh, a film which sort of in sort of early 2010 kind of grabbed the imagination because uh, of two reasons. One, it's a new John Cusack comedy film that was set in the 80s, um, which is often perceived as the time as when John Cusack kind of made his name, which is completely ridiculous because it isn't the 90s when John Cusack made his best film. Um, but also because it's called Hot Tub Time Machine, which is just a brilliant um, title for a film. It is That is such an 80s film title. Sure. It's just a throwaway 80s, straight to you know VHS film title. Um, and then when it came out, I didn't manage to catch it theatre um, um, and there was all these reviews and they were hugely negative reviews you know people were talking about just how much they hated it and I, I was a little bit like alright great well uh, I was actually really looking forward to that so I waited for it to come out on uh, on, on 
Blu-ray, uh, and then ended up watching it, funny enough, on Sky Box Office one night. I thought, you know what? Fuck it. I can't be asked to buy the DVD or the Blu-ray of it, but I can be asked to pay three ninety-five to watch it right now. Yeah. So I watched it on Sky. What is it? And then I, I watched it again this week. It. I I think I said this. I had a discussion uh, with uh, yourself at Friday this year. Well, for some reason, I like films set in the snow, and I like comedy films that have skiing in them. Yeah, sure. <laughs> uh, I remember saying that I was, I was, I was going through a ski exploitation uh, <laughs> sort of track where I was watching a lot of sort of early nineties, late 80s, early nineties sort of skiing movies. Um, and I, I think I drunkly joked that I was going to make, I was going to write a book on ski exploitation, which would include the movies Ski School One, Two, and Ski Patrol. Um, and so this kind of it's set in the eighties, kind of. Um, you've got skiing in it. You've got John Cusack being good. John Cusack, not John Cusack. Uh, you've got Craig Robinson, who I actually think is a great comedic actor. Yeah, uh, Craig Robinson's great. Yeah, and, and you've got Rob Corddry, who Rob Corddry is, is, is one of those fine fine comedic actors. He can very easily go too far, and it's just like, you know what, you're not funny. But when he, when he's being out the right material, and when he has the right people to bounce off, um, he, he can be so unbelievably, for me anyway, I don't think anyone else agrees with me on this, but he can be so perfect. There's a great scene in this where um, Rob Cordy, basically the gist of the film is, is Rob Cordy's, um character um, uh, Lou attempts to commit suicide but you don't know whether he is or whether he isn't um, and um, his friends played with John Cusack um, and uh, Craig Robinson sort of go to him and they've been avoiding him and they say right we're going to take you away we're all going to go away we're going to go away at this, this, this resort called Kodiak Valley where they they spent sort of a lot of their, their youth uh, and they go along with um, John Cusack's nephew, uh, by uh, Clark Clark, Clark Duke, uh, and him and uh, Rob Cordry don't get on for some reason. They just don't like each other. Mm. Uh, all Rob Cordry wants to do is get drunk um, and get high and have a good time, and the rest of them are kind of looking at it and looking back on their lives, and then they get they sort of hop in a time a, a hot tub, and it takes them back to 1986. Um, a lot of people pick it and go, yeah, well, that, that happened in 1986, and this, this, like, oh, fuck off. <laughs> old hot tub time machine. You can't pick historical inaccuracies in that film. Right? For a start, it's a film about a hot tub that is a time fucking machine. Right? The fact that they mentioned 21 Jump Street and that wasn't on the air until 1988, that shouldn't even fucking come into play at all. <laughs> Right. Um, so anyway, you've got a great scene where Rob Cordy's character is saying to um, John Cusack's character, you know, I don't know where it ever says in the asshole handbook that you should, that you could just fuck over your friends, and then they'll kind of stop and say, well, no, it, it would say that in the asshole handbook. <laughs> you've got Rob Cordy going, oh, wait a minute, wait, no, you're right, it would do. So sorry about that, my bad. And you've just got great little sort of gems just hidden in there. The fact that you've got this great cameo from Chevy Chase, who he constantly refers to Matt Duke's character as being a woman. 
Oh, that's uh, right. Yes, yeah. And it, 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 it is the exact level of stupid humour that, for some reason, um, just clicks with me all the time. Um, the fact that also, let's say, it's set on a ski mountain, uh, must play into it somewhere with me. Um, and I, I, what I'll say now is, I have no intention to ever go skiing in my life. You know, my love of skiing films has nothing to do with wanting to go skiing or enjoying skiing, because I really fucking don't. Um, but it, it's just wonderful, and I remember when it came out, and like a year after it, um, and what did uh, Rob Cordry, who was saying, you know, and he was asked, is there going to be a sequel? And he said, well, probably not, because the problem is, the film did well at the cinema. It didn't do brilliant, it did well in, in theatres. But it did a lot of money on, on home video. Yeah. The DVD did very well, and the Blu-ray did very well. He said, but the problem is, we had a shitty opening weekend. And the problem is there, all people look at is the opening weekend. Well, have you heard the news this week? They, apparently, yeah, they, they are all, with the exception of John Cusack, they are all kind of talking, and um, Steve Pink has been... You know, as I said, that he's been approached to write a screenplay, and Cordry apparently is on board to co-write. Yeah. Uh, although, you know, Cusack's kind of, you know, usually, I mean, John Cusack's a miserable bastard. Everyone knows that. Um, and apparently, a lot of that could be attributed to the fact that, you know, he, you know, unpublicized, but he apparently is an alcoholic uh, and gets and gets you know, out of being miserable, of being fun to work with. Mm. You know, a lot of the time, like, for instance, there's supposed to be a 1408 sequel. John Cusack has kind of poo-pooed that by saying, fuck it, I hated that fucking film. But then, apparently, now he's going to make it. Um, <laughs> but, you know, after, you know, he was quite kind of defensive of, of Pots of Time Machine. He said, you know, that he had a lot of fun making it, and he had a lot of fun with it, and, you know, he would be up for... Um, doing another one. So, you know, I, I, I generally I think I'm one of the few people that really fucking hopes this happens because I'll be there from day one because I adore this film. I, I, I don't know why, and it, it is juvenile, it is ridiculous. I could, if people say I don't like it, I could completely see why they don't like it. Personally, I, I adore this movie. Yeah, yeah, no, I, um, I, yeah, no, I've, uh, I, I'm, I'm, I'd like it as well. I, um, previewed, uh, the 35mm print we had, uh, back in the day. And, um, yeah, I, I had fun with it, actually. It just, it, it, it kind of does what it says on the tin, really. Um, yeah. I, I think, it, it, often I think nowadays with comedy, if it's not, if it's not, doesn't start or isn't written by somebody from that, um, Apatow, sort of family or one of the offshoots of those then you know they if somebody isn't from there or isn't part of the Adam Sandler group kind of gets treated differently and people go oh well, it's just this stupid 80s sort of throwback sort of retro film um, you know and it gets kind of like poked at and snapped at and treated differently if this for instance was an Adam Sandler movie it would have fucking made you know, it'd have been shit for a start. It'd have starred fucking Kevin James. Yeah. Probably Adam Sandberg. And it'd have been, it wouldn't have been half as funny. But it'd have probably made $200 million. Um, and I just think that, that 
you know, this kind of comedy it obviously has a market because they're thinking about making a sequel. Yeah, I mean, it, it's, I don't know, it's just, it's it's an odd cast to sell, though. Like, John Cusack is not as big a star as he used to be. That just oh. is what it is. I mean, fuck me, he was outacted by a raccoon in The Raven, for fuck's sake. Um, <laughs> now, I, I, and I mean, like, Rob Corddry, Craig Robinson, and Clark Duke, they're kind of known, It's but they are slightly, I would say, for mainstream audiences, they are a little bit, hey, that guy. Um, I think maybe... Um... Craig Robinson could have the breakthrough role in um, This Is the End. That's uh, true. Because he, you know, he's in with with you know with Franco and um, Seth Rogen and people like that, and maybe that's where people go, you know, breakout role, and then they could use the next uh, hot tub time machine too as kind of being like advertise it as from there. But also as well, they they set up the sequel during this film. Yeah. When they talk about the um, Cincinnati, uh, and they say, you know, we, we said we were talk about Cincinnati, and you get uh, Clark Duke saying, well, what happened in Cincinnati? And he's like, well, nothing we said we were talk about. He says, is that what that, uh, that shoe in your closet that says Cincinnati? Is that what that's about? <laughs> and, you know, it, 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 that, you can tell that the sequel is going to be Cincinnati. Yeah. Um. And it'll probably be that they end up going back in time to the events of Cincinnati, you know. And it'll be it'll be something. It'll have to be something. It'll it will involve some kind of time machine. But it'll be like called I don't know, fucking um, Swedish Donna time machine or some shit. Like that. <laughs> uh, anyway, uh, what is your uh, one of the Swedish sauna time machine. I love that. That's great. Um, <laughs> um, my my one old uh, is uh, it was an unexpected uh, Samuel L. Jackson double bill for me on Friday after Django Unchained because on E4 the mighty and um, again like Hot Tub Time Machine with you. It's a film that I feel like people don't really like, but I think they should do. The mighty snakes on a plane. I fucking adore snakes on a plane. There you go. Now, like, I also, like, I, I kind of, like, I, I was also thinking, you know, because the, the director, David R. Ellis, um, who also directed Final Destination 2 and Cellular and um, Shark Knight, oh dear, uh, actually died uh, a couple of weeks back. Um, yeah. Uh, so, uh, that, you know, that was quite sad. He was only, like, 50-something as well. And um, the dude make, made fun pulpy films he had misfires like the final destination is the worst final destination film uh but final destination 2 is the best final destination film so you know um but yeah snakes on a plane the film that famously um was more popular on the on the net before it actually came out than it was after it came out and it already feels like it's been forgotten really Mm. um but it just it kind of fires on all cylinders throughout the entire runtime for me. Uh, it's, I, I, I mean, like the story is barely worth getting into. But I, but again, the story, like the setup, is amazing. Samuel L. Jackson is like an FBI agent who is travel, like uh, getting a witness from Honolulu to L.A. to testify against the crime boss. The crime boss trying to kill that said. Uh, witness decides to put a load of snakes in a load of flower boxes in the plane and then blow up the boxes 
and have the snakes not only kill all the people really gruesomely by biting them, or in one case, eating the person whole by the looks of it, <laughs> uh, which is amazing, but also just by like, the snakes getting into the electrics and bringing the, tr- the plane down. So you've got this full plane full of various characters, including Keenan Thompson, who uh, is very, very good at playing video games, and how will that come into the plot, I wonder. Um, uh, uh, Basically running away from snakes, while Samuel L. Jackson looks increasingly pissed off at having to deal with the snakes. Um, It's a film of simple, simple pleasures. It's a film where snakes, if they can, will at first go for women's tits at every available opportunity. (laughs) Um, yes. And, it, I mean, it, it's a film where a crime boss puts a load of snakes on a plane to try and kill a witness, and also the entire like, like staff and passengers of the plane. Um, and, it but, sounds I mean, like a drunk conversation you'd have in a pub. Yeah, it, 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 that's the thing. It does. It does. And, uh, and yet it works. It is funny throughout the entire thing. It embraces completely how fucking ridiculous it is. It doesn't skimp on the blood. It doesn't skimp on the icky stuff. Um, Samuel L. Jackson is doing his cool Samuel L. Jackson thing, which is great. Um, and it, I, mean, I don't have too much to say about Snakes on a Plane, to be honest. It just, it, like I said, it feels like it's been forgotten. Uh, like that, it's it was it's a title more than a film, and it probably is a title more than a film, but it it flies. It's really really funny, and and I I just think if if people haven't taken a chance on it, it's really really worth a go. Um, so fuck yeah. yeah, snakes on a plane. Without question, it, it, the problem is is it got it appealed to kind of like people like us, like genre film fans and stuff like that, because it's got a ridiculous title and will. We'll give sort of those films a watch just because they sound ridiculous, and you know we'll we'll look past that uh, the ridiculousness of it. Um, and I think a lot of people are put off by the fact that it, it, it is so silly, but it's never kind of it it, it knows exactly what it's doing, but it, it never pokes fun at itself. It never it it's never serious, but it's never spoofy. Um, which is, is, I think is, is brilliant. And also, it, it contains one of the, um, apparently, you know, in, in America, often when they put um, films on TV, um, they they change the um, F words for stuff. Um, like a, a famous one, for instance, with the Big Lebowski, uh, you know, where Walter is shouting, this is what happens uh, when you talk to strange in the ass, yeah. which, which was changed to, this is what happens when you have fun with a stranger in the Alps. <laughs> um, in um, in the US, the TV edit of the movie, where uh, someone Jackson shouts, I have had it with these motherfucking snakes on this motherfucking plane, was changed to, I have had it with these monkey-fighting snakes on this Monday to Friday plane. Really? Which is just wonderful. Yeah, I, I would... If somebody could write like a book or a website or something that just had 
it was just a list of film, the film name, and then there were, you know, the actual line, and then the ridiculous line uh, replaced. I would, I could spend hours reading that shit. Uh, it probably exists somewhere, but yeah, but that is what they changed it to, which is just, just brilliant. That's, <laughs> hell, that's brutal. I'd love to be the guy who went, I've got it. I've got what we can change it to. These monkey I've... fighting snakes on this Monday to Friday plane. <laughs> yeah. Blimey, Charlie. Oh, it's brilliant. Well, on that note, let's move on. Um, <laughs> so uh, it's time for uh, uh, our discussion topic. And uh, Mark actually had the idea for this one. So uh, take it away, man. Um, anyone uh, who lives in the UK or is on Twitter and doesn't live in the UK will have probably heard oh, within the past sort of um, we say 10 years now has it been a week maybe um, the last remaining major high street uh, entertainment retailer in the UK HMV has gone into administration and is likely either going to completely close the doors or um, scale down considerably Um a year or so ago, HMB had um, 250 plus stars. Um, Rumours are that if it, if it does survive, it will go down to around maybe 40 or 50 stars um, across the UK. Um, for instance, I had two in York at the start of last year. Uh, I have one, and um, from what I hear from knowing people who work there, uh, I'm probably not going to have one very soon. Um, but we don't just want to talk about H&B because at the same time, uh, Blockbuster, uh, the uh, rental place, but they also actually sell software as uh, they've got administration and there is no fucking hope in hell that a single one of them is going to stay open. Uh, they pretty much already have sold up all their stock or stock they haven't sold off, they've sent away um, and that is going to be gone as well. So, really, in the UK, uh, essentially now we're down to, on a, a large scale or wide basis, there are no major entertainment retailers out there now. Uh, the only way, really, essentially, let's say, um, if you want to buy a new release or anything, really, is online. So, if, but if you want to buy, let's say, Dread came out last week. Yeah. Uh, if you want to buy Dread now, um, if dreadful, you know, now HB is gone or when it does go, you want to buy Dread uh, and you don't want to wait for it to, to arrive from online. Um, you're basically looking at supermarkets, you're looking at Tesco, Asda, Sainsbury's, places like that. Now, I, I, I to be honest, I, I don't see the evil in that. Um, you know, okay, I, I, I don't see the problem. If I can buy it from Asda, I don't see an issue with buying it from there or buying it from HB. The problem there is, um, let's say I want to, like tomorrow, uh, American Mary comes out, and I just haven't ordered it online for some reason. Um, I want to go and buy it. I don't think they're actually going to have it because I don't think they're actually getting any new stock. Mm. Um, and I, I think I could definitely see my love as to having it, but it, it's a fifty-fifty. Now, you know. The Asda will have it because the cover is a hot girl smiling. Well, yeah, that, 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 that's, that's, that's so why Asda I think, will stop. I, I think they, they, they will have it. But we're essentially going to have nowhere where we can guarantee to go and buy stuff. So I just want to sort of go over the, sort of the state and things like that and sort of discuss 
it's, it's quite, quite kind of strong feeling on um, a lot of people are kind of saying that we should save HIV or this lot. And I, my kind of idea, I kind of split on it. Um, I think we should save, and uh, there should be, I would love this to still be a, a high street presence for a, uh, not only um, film, um, DVD, Blu-ray, but also music, even though I, I don't buy CDs anymore. Um, I think there should be a high street presence for that, but I don't think HMV is the right one to have tried to save, to be honest. I think that people are already saying save HMV because it's the last remaining one. HMV haven't done anything to fucking save themselves over the past um, sort of couple of years since um, Zavi went under, um, which obviously used to be Virgin Megastars. Uh, and to my knowledge, Zavi didn't go under because it was the company wasn't making money. It went under because the distributor who supplied their stock uh, went under when um, Woolworths went under. So they they simply couldn't get stock. Um, And at the time, uh, they tried to get stock from the same suppliers as H&B, but H&B blocked it, so hence blew competition out of the water, essentially. Uh, And then they got incredibly fucking lazy. Uh, one thing that I want to point back to, uh, in the space of a few weeks, um, when it was released, the week uh, the Blu-ray, uh, the Anchor Blu-ray was released of Suspiria, uh, my wife went to try and buy me it for my birthday, which um, was a couple of weeks before my birthday. Um, I just went to, we've got two HMVs uh, at the time in York. She went to buy it from HMV, um, asked for Suspiria, uh, on Blu-ray, because they didn't have it in stock, despite the fact it was released that week. Yeah. Uh, and when she asked, oh, you've got Suspiria, uh, was greeted with, what? Yeah. Suspiria. Greeted with, well, what, what's that? And this was by the guy who ran the Blu-ray section. Oh, fuck's sake. So, I mean, what, what are your thoughts on, on, on this that's, that's, that's cropped up? Um, what are your feelings and... Uh, well, ba- basically, I mean, like, but, uh, uh, well, H- HMV, I mean, they, like you say, they haven't been helping themselves. And, like, they're, I don't, I mean, like, I know certain, um, certain members of their staff probably were kind of in there for the, the love of, like, what they were selling and things like that. But it was kind of like my experience of working in, um, working in cinemas where, People who work in cinemas, like, it doesn't necessarily mean they actually like films. Um, it, it's just, it, it's just a job. And that, that's the thing. With a retailer like a, a, HMV, which is kind of, you know, it, it, it is like a track going for like a niche market, essentially. They needed to have, they need to have stuff that give a shit more. And I'm sure, they're sure there are there's some. They, they, yeah, but, I mean, what I'll say is you just, jump in at a second because it's, it's pertinent to what you're saying um, I worked for HMV uh, 10 years ago I, w- I worked for HMV uh, and when I worked there um, the guy who ran the classical music and the soundtrack section was in uh, classical music and he was actually in the movie soundtrack Yeah. the guy who ran um, the uh, overall music section was heavily in uh, music, the guy who ran the vinyl section, there was still a vinyl section there he ran the vinyl section the rap and the dance section, and that's because that's what he was into. Yeah. Uh, the guy who ran the um, the film bit, that's what he was into, and I worked on the the film bit. Yeah. 
a friend of mine worked at HMV uh, up until about a year ago, and she was in charge of the DVD and Blu-ray section. And I'm not joking, she had maybe in her life seen ten films, just didn't watch films at all. And she was running the DVD and Blu-ray section Mm. of HMV. And I could say, you know, like film saying, yeah, I know, but um, that, that's the bit I run. I'll run that for six months and I'm moving back on to um, a different section. And I was astounded at that point. And I, you know, the times where I'd sort of go in and I'd be chatting to it, I'd be stood sort of flicking through stuff and be going, um, why is that in horror? She'd be like, well, it's a horror film. No, it's not. And just the ridiculousness of. of and she's like, oh, I thought like it was. Like, no, it, 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 it's not. Yeah, I mean, oh. that, that, I mean, that, that's fair. I mean, it's like stupid things like you'll go to one bit of the store and something will be priced up at a fiver. You'll go to another bit of the store and it'll be 28 quid. Mm. You know, it, 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 it's things like that. It's just like you say, they just got lazy. They just didn't really give a shit anymore. They were just, we're the only ones on, on, like, on the high street that do this now. Let's rag it. And I mean... It, I mean, obviously, digital distribution has changed things massively, and like physical sales are on a downswing. And also, with with this economy, like in the end of the day, if people don't have as much disposable income, they're not going to buy as many of these things because, frankly, you don't need them. You know, but I mean, it, 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 I mean, H and V were working on an antiquated business model anyway. And I mean, frankly, you walk into the Cardiff store, and it's a fucking mess now because. They tried branching out into tech as well, yeah. like as like a last ditch thing. So like the Car- Cardiff store, the upstairs bit is fine. It's it's all films and it's it is messy, but it, it is basically it is all films and it you know, it does kind of make sense. But the downstairs bit, you walk in and first of all, it's just like their major offers, so like their five for thirties or whatever. Then you've just got this like massive tech section where it's just like headphones are scattered all over the place. And you've got tablets on tables and stuff and yeah. yeah and other little stupid little things and toys and books and stuff. They're all just chucked in there. And then you've got like games at the back. And bizarrely you barely had a music section. I mean the music section was not wasn't even as big as the games section. You well, know I don't mind um the I am currently sat in my bedroom. The HMV in in York is a big H. It's not like it's not the same as fucking like the Oxford Street, but it, it's a fairly sort of you know quite a big size HMV. Um, I'm sat in my bedroom. I live in a a, a two bedroom bungalow. Um, and I'm not joking. The Blu-ray section, including all the fucking racks and everything, is smaller than the room I am sat in right now. Oh, and one side of that doesn't have any racks on it at all um, it, the blu-ray section is literally is one and a half of their racks and that's yeah. it yeah. you can barely find anything and for instance I got a um, I got a 25 pound H&B voucher which I have used um, Lucky on you. Christmas yeah. um, and I went in to, to, to buy some stuff I thought I'm not going to get the 5 to 30 stuff which is a, is a good deal Um because it's just going to be just bog standard catalog titles, and I can get them anytime. Uh, I thought I'm going to get some, some decent stuff, um, and I, I I really fucking struggled because everything I picked up, I thought, well, do you know what? 
I could buy that online for like three, four pounds cheaper. But they had the um, all Mission Impossible films on Blu-ray. I think you, you tweeted a picture of that. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Um, for seventy-five pounds. I thought, I thought that was it. They had the um, the Cole Brothers collection on Blu-ray, and I thought, oh, I'll pick it out. On the same day as I went in, I got an email off Zavi online, um, and they were selling that DVD, that Blu-ray collection, for $9.95. In the sale, it was $49.95. It just... $9.95, it was £40 more. So in the end, I thought, look it, I got a couple of steelbooks out of it. I yeah. thought, I, I, I can cope with that. But I picked up, at one point, I picked up the uh, the steelbook for E.T. and was going to buy that. Um, and it was in the sale for £19. In the sake. sale. And I got that steelbook, that's the E.T. steelbook on the Amazon Black Friday deal for twelve ninety five. Yeah. I was, it, it was, it was just... It was ridiculous, but it seemed to be that every time I, 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 I'd gone into HMV for the past kind of year and a bit, I'd, I'd come out really feeling just, just really disappointed. Yeah, just what was uh, the point of that? Yeah. They didn't seem to have that great a selection. Um, the selection they did have was lazy. Their pricing structure was just bizarre. Um, and then they did this last-ditch attempt before they went into administration where they did this Blue Cross deal. Where anything with a Blue Cross on it, you got 25% off, and I thought, do you know what, fucking, yeah, I could see that, you know, I could see this being, you know, great, yeah. and this was obviously them just trying to get in a load of money at once, um, to try and maybe satisfy whatever, whatever credit yeah. they need to do, but I went in, I'd been in a few days before, I said, look at the sale, I went in, and they'd put some of the Blue Cross stuff, they'd put up in price, stuck a Blue Cross on it, and it was down at the same price it had been at That's two days it. earlier when I'd been in. And I thought, well, A, I didn't buy it then because I know I can get it cheaper online. And B, that that's not an additional sale. That's you just doing what you fuck. And this isn't a new thing HMV have been doing. I remember 20-odd years ago when an album came out, it'd be twelve ninety nine, but it'd be thirteen forty nine in HMV. And it was like a fucking HMV tax they used to put on stuff. Yeah. But it, I was just astounded at how just shit it was. What they could, what they should have done and could have done there is gone, do you know what? This is a fucking last-ditch sale. Let's go for it and go, right, all early 2012 releases on Blu-ray, they're a tenner. All late 2011 releases, they're eight quid. All early 2011 releases, they're seven quid. All 2010 releases are a six quid. All catalogue titles are fiver. You don't have to do every single Blu-ray. But there, you could do that. I'd have gone in and easily spent 50, 60 quid. But I'm not going to fucking buy. You know, for instance, Social Network was nine quid with the Blue Cross. That's including the 25% off. That's including 25% off, yeah, in my HMV. In other people's HMVs, it was different. Mate, well, I, got, I, I got that for five for thirty in HMV a few months back. I got that for a fiver from Master. It just you know, the, the the thing is is I'd like to have a a high street retailer selling stuff. I'd like to go in and be able to chat shit 
to the guy who works there about Italian horror. I'd like to be able to chat shit about fucking crap films. I'd like to go up to him and ask something ridiculous and know that he's going to fucking... He might not have seen it, he might know what the film's about, but he's going to have seen the fucking box or know that it's out and not have this... I tried to buy uh, Four Flies on Grey Velvet when that came out, the day it came out. You know, and yeah, it's not a... It's not a standard title, but HMV should have been stocking that shit. Yeah. Went in, perfectly confident that they'd have it. Went in, looked for it, couldn't find it. Went up to the guy and said, oh, have you got any copies of uh, Four Flies and Grey Velvet? And he went, what? Four Flies and Grey Velvet? He went, I'd never heard of it, mate. And I said, all right, congratulations. Um, but that doesn't mean it doesn't exist. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And do you know what he said to me? He looked at me, kind of cocked his head at me, closed one eye a little bit and went, I work at H&V, mate. I think I'd know. Oh, my God, really? Which prompted me going, um, right, do you want to go over... I used to work here, by the way. Do you go over to the computer and you can type it in and then you can apologise to me, a cunt. Yeah, yeah. Uh, there's no need to get like that. I was like, fuck you. So I will fucking drag the fucking manager down and, uh, and get him explaining what the fuck you just did. Yeah. Typed it in and went, no, don't exist, mate. You've got it wrong, mate. Um, no, you've spelt velvet wrong. Yeah. Like, do you know what? Fuck it. You obviously haven't got it, and you're obviously too much of a fucking dick to yeah. help, mate. Do you know what? I'll just buy it online. Oh, <laughs> and also, what I will add to, to people saying with the Save HMV campaign and saying, oh, buy a film online. You know, don't get from Amazon. I don't buy DVDs from Amazon. I don't buy Blu-rays from Amazon. I bought Blu-ray from Amazon in, in ages. No, Chris, I did. I bought the Sylvester Stallone collection uh, because it was six forty-nine. Yeah. But I usually buy them from Davy Play, but I can't buy them from Play anymore. Yeah. Uh, but I, I, I buy them from al- alternative places. Uh, but HMV only recently aligned prices online with prices in store. Yeah. You know, going back 18 months, you could buy something online for four or five quid cheaper than you could buy it in branch. And I didn't hear HMV bleating about how bad online was then. It's a fair point. And I, actually, I'll, I'll say as well, the Save HMV thing, if one thing that's really got my heckles up, people saying, you know, go in and support it and whatnot. That those people were not saying that when Comet closed down and when Jessup's went into administration like a like, couple of weeks back. You know, exactly. th- those people were not saying that then. Just because, and the thing is, I think those people, like most of these people saying it, frankly, most of us haven't bought anything from HMV in fucking ages because of these problems we're talking about. And, you know, it's like people saying, oh, it's people's livelihoods and whatnot. I'm, I'm, under, I'm basically, I know I'm being made redundant in just over two months. I know I am. Like, thankfully, I've had an awful lot of time to get used to the idea, and it's fine. And, you know, I'll get another job. It'll be fine. But, you know, I, so I'm not coming at this from a, I, you know, I don't exactly know how, how these people are feeling kind of thing. But no, I mean, it, it, it just, like, I'm not trying to make it sound unfeeling, but it's just like, why didn't you say, like, buy an electronic good from Comet? Why didn't you say, buy a camera accessory from Jessup's? You know, it, it, it's, it's, I don't know. And I mean, because the thing is, HMV have been shit for ages. Block, I mean, Blockbuster, like, to be fair, it, it's just a sign of the times. Oh, block, Blockbuster's been clinging, Blockbuster should have gone five years ago. Yeah, it's yeah, been yeah. clinging on 
the dear life for far too long. Because the thing is, is but a lot of people are saying, well, I don't, you know, I'm not as shit at Tape of Blockbuster because they, they helped, you know, close down my local family-run video shop, which I thoroughly agree with, completely agree with. I I used to have a Blockbuster card because I used to live when I used to live in a flat uh, with Becky in my first flat. There was a Blockbuster's literally a minute down the road, and I used to have a Blockbuster's card then. Um, and I used to use it a lot. Um, but that was sort of back in the early noughties, before I had a lot of disposable income to go out and buy shitloads of, what is it? Mainly because most of my disposable income went on cigarettes and booze. Um, but I, 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 if there was a local video shop, I, I would gladly fucking support that. Um, but I'm not going to fucking support Blockbuster, and I'm not going to shed a tear for it. But then again, you know... We used to, in York, we used to have three uh, independent-run record shops. One called Track, which was there for about 30-odd years. Uh, one called Depth Charge, and I can't even remember what this one was called. Um, and, you know, HMV helped close all three of those down. You know, it wasn't online sales that closed those down. It was places like HMV. Um, we've, you know, been able to sell... You know, in the late 90s, early 90s, they had to sell, like, three for 20 on CDs when these companies, other companies, couldn't get near that. You know, they helped close those down. Now that they've got that market and they've got the market share, they basically went, you know what, fuck you. And instead of sort of keeping these deals going, they, they disappeared. The 5 for 30 Blu-ray deal is a brilliant deal. It's a wonderful deal. I would happily, at least once a month, possibly twice a month, I would have happily gone in there and spent, you know, 30 or 60 quid and bought five or ten Blu-rays. But I've become so pissed off over the years with them that I, I, I don't feel like doing it anymore. Because we used to be, when Virgin was around, now they do a five for, before Blu-rays, but they do a five for 30, and H&V do a three for 20. And I could easily spend a day, spend 50 quid once a month buying five and buying three. And if I go through my DVDs, I've got loads of DVDs in, on my shelves, still in cellophane, still with a um, three for 20 sticker stuck on them, or a five for 30 from Zaddy mm. sticker stuck on them. Um, and I would happily do that. And I like that cathartic experience of going in and going, right, I have 30 quid, I'm going to go in and I'm going to buy some Blu-rays or I'm going to buy some DVDs, as it was. Going in, having that feeling that I, I'm not going in for something specific, I'm going in just to buy some stuff. Like yeah. a shitty day, I want to go and buy some stuff. And now I know that's gone. I can't do that anymore. But that had gone while HMV was still, while still yeah. here. Yeah. That was gone. And I, 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 it's not HMV that I pine for. If HMV came out, survived this and had to downscale or whatever. But they come out and they went, right, we're going to have a new business structure. We're going to do this. We're going to do this. And I went in under new management or whatever. And it was, right, new new Blu-rays are 15 quid. If they're a special edition, they're 17 quid. And we're going to do an offer where we're going to see these this five Blu-rays going to be a tenner. This is going to be eight quid. And they had some kind of pricing structure. Fuck it. I'd, be, I'd love it. And that they, you know, they had they made the Blu-ray section bigger and got rid of. There are more. There is a bigger section dedicated to 
fucking headphones. Yeah, yeah. And they went, will you back to that? And I waited. I'd be fucking elated with that. I'd be, I'd go in there and I'd support that. But I don't see why I should support a, a, a structure that doesn't give a shit about me as a consumer. It wants to, it wants, the consumers it wants are the people who don't often go into HMV, who are going in to buy a birthday present or a Christmas present for their granddaughter, grandson, niece, nephew, and they don't usually go in there so they don't know they're being exploited. Yeah, yeah. And that's it. And I mean, like, I'll I'll say to anyone who feels bad about, you know, the whole kind of cathartic thing of just being able to go in and look for stuff and, you know, and, 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 you know, get it in your hands. I, conversely, I like coming home and opening up my post box and seeing Blu-rays from, like, Zavi or The Hut or wherever, you know, and, like, because I've been online and I've seen, holy fuck, that for a fiver. Right, I'm going to get that. You know, like, I, I like the, the the going on Blu-ray.com where it's got, like, the Amazon, like, the best, like, uh, best prices. Yeah. Like that. I, I, I like doing that as well, and you get that great thing. I mean, this is this is getting into massive geek territory. But when I get home, I don't usually even buy a Blu-ray online. I don't like to buy them one at a time. I'll buy a couple. Yeah, sure. Um, and I just think when I, I get home and I'll see them on the map, I'll be like, oh, right. I don't just open them straight away like I would do normal mail. You know, I I get like everything sorted and get myself settled. So I'm sat on the sofa and I'm like, right. I don't need to do anything else for the night. This is fucking, this is me. Sure. Dinner's on, everything's like that. I'm settled, you know, I've got everything sorted. And then it, I open them and I'll look at it. I could look at my DD selection, collection. I could just stare at it for an hour easily. But I, you, when you're a complete fucking nerd, you get a DVD box and you look at it and you go over and you're going, oh man, look at it. You read the blurb despite the fact that you've seen the film. Yeah, yeah. And you look at it going, oh, it's amazing. And then you look at it and think, oh, I get to watch this soon. And then I get to put it in my DVD floor. And I get to do all that. I get excited about that. Totally. For instance, I bought the Steelbook for Tinker Taylor uh, recently because I want to rewatch it. Because I didn't really like it that much and I'm willing to give it another go. I bought a Steelbook of that from Zavi for £6. For five ninety five, mm. that is with the blue cross thing. I saw the steel book in <laughs> HMV yeah. with the blue cross on it. Have a guess, including the blue cross difference at the discount. Have a guess how much it was. Bear in mind, all I have to do is go on my phone, on my computer, or anything like that. Order it. Yeah, it's Zavi, so it'll take a fucking week for it to arrive. But fuck it. Yeah, I think it's bang on 15 quid. Yeah, that's fucking ridiculous. Sure. Yeah, I mean, that that, that is ridiculous. And I will say as well, another boon of this happening, if this happens and Steelbooks stop being HMV exclusive and are offered by multiple retailers, you might get some more price competition on Steelbooks. And that could be a good thing. The HMV exclusive steelbook for Skyfall is now available at Amazon. Oh, is it? Yeah. Oh, I need to order that. Pretty sure it is. Pretty sure. Because I, I know the Looper exclusive steelbook is now on Amazon, but also, I think it's also on Zavi as well. Yeah. Uh, yes, it is on Zavi. Uh, um, yeah, I'm sure. 
someone said they just recorded the um, Skyfall Steelbook. Uh, I might, I might, I might be telling a huge lie here. Cause I can't see it right now. Um, I can't see it on there actually. Skyfall Steel. Oh no. No, it might be somewhere else. Then. Okay, I'm gonna Google it. Uh, yeah, I, I, sorry, I, 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 yeah, because I mean, books are becoming a great collector's thing. You know, I, I, I've been joking to my wife saying that I, from now on I'm only buying Blu-rays in steelbook form, uh, which isn't true. But, but, um, but you know, I, I think now, you know, I am going to, instead of buying, let's say, if there's a new steelbook out, instead of buying two catalogue title Blu-rays, I'll be buying a steelbook. You know, I'm going to attempt to grow my steelbook collection over the next year. Um just because for no reason other than just a steelbook would be a wonderful thing. They are lovely. Yeah. Um, so I, I, I think we're about we're about doing our our um, lamenting of the entertainment high street void that is now there. Mm, yeah, I mean, it I just it. I don't know, and and frankly, it just means I'm going to be um, uh, uh, wasting less time on the high street going into HMV and getting pissed off about the there not being any deals. And I will say as well, one last thing, people saying that, you know, this is going to lead to, um, like, prices like Amazon and whatnot going up. A, but it's only one online retailer that's going to be disappearing anyway. And B, like, it's not like HMV in-store or even competing with Amazon's, uh, like, prices or Zavi's prices. I know people say Amazon should be paying corporation tax, blah, blah, blah. You know, Zavi, the hut, the, the marketplace on play.com, they, they all offer competitive prices to Amazon as well. Mm. And, um, HMV.com up until around a year ago was based in Jersey, so it didn't pay tax itself. Yeah. So, so, you know, let's not fucking, let's not claim that it's this wonderful fucking bastion of, uh, of great business practices. Um, you know, it, 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 it's fucked itself over largely. I would, I'd, I'd like it, I'd like it to survive in some kind of capacity. Um, and it's never nice to see people lose jobs. You know, I've, I've been, I've worked for two companies, one where I had, um, three weeks, um, uh, because the company was going out of business. Uh, and I've had one where I've walked into work, um, and walked in and then my area manager turned up 10 minutes later and go, oh, um, Jobs are open today. Why? Because uh, um, we're closing. Yeah, brutal. It's like what? It's like well, yeah, you're gonna go home. Yeah, you go home. Oh, but can you tell all the staff? Oh, and then fuck go, me. all right. So we're getting paid. And he was didn't. He was very much like, oh no, we can't pay. It's like eh, yeah, you can. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. You know, I had to basically argue um, to get paid, but it was basically turn up that day, that morning at eight o'clock, and by half eight. I was, you know, I was putting the shutter down and, and closing the shop. Yeah. You know, and that was it. I went. Somebody else came in and packed up all the stuff. We, we, we were just told we had to go. And I had to break it to eight people. That's fine. That's so. it. They, they, they no longer had jobs and didn't have anything to explain. So it, it, it's fucking, it's horrible. It's shit. And, you know, in this job market, it, it, it's a scary thing, especially in the retail job market. But unfortunately, these things happen. Uh, one other thing I, w- I will quickly say is, um, on, a, on a positive note, uh, everybody out there should 
get the uh, Hot UK Deals app. Um, yeah, boy. Because it is wonderful. I put it on notifications, it pops up and tells me. It literally, just a few minutes ago, it popped up and told me that I could get the Robert De Niro collection on Blu-ray at Zavi for 9.95, and that is Heat, Goodfellas, The Mission, and Once Upon a Time in America, which I would buy, except I know that there's a Blu-ray of the extended Once Upon a Time in America coming out later on this year, so I won't be buying that. I actually got that box set for 7.97 on Amazon uh, just before Christmas. Oh, I might do that then instead. I, I, I could stomach 7.97 quite easily. Oh, it's up to 21.25. I shall keep an eye out. Yeah. Okay. Nice. Um, right, anyway, uh, we do have some Twitter questions. Go on then, uh, sir. Right. First one uh, is from Charlie, a.k.a. Sharks Ackle on Twitter. Oh, nice, he yeah. says, Given the fragmented nature of the music in Django and Chain versus its traditional linear story, should QT try a proper score next time? Um, we didn't actually touch on the, the soundtrack to um, Django Unchained. Um, it's spectacular, the soundtrack. Mm-hmm. Um, however, I, I, I can see uh, where um, Charlie is coming from there. Is that, you know, Tarantino doesn't really work in scores. He works in soundtracks, and there are bits of the score make up the soundtrack. Um, I... I I think it, it, it suits his um, controlled, chaotic sort of filmmaking um, quite well. So I think it would it would be too incongruous to the way he makes films and that pulp nature that he has of making films uh, if it had a more linear score. Um, I'd be intrigued to see it uh, myself, even though I like the way he 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 like he uses music. I think it's pretty electric but because uh, I know like he was in kind of early talks with Ennio Morricone to um, do an actual score for Inglorious Bastards mm. but then the, the the actual music being used in Inglorious in, in Bastards is is wonderful I mean that's he just it, it see it all seems to just completely fit and as long as he spent like in the future spends the same amount of time and effort in picking his these pieces of music, which I think he will, then I haven't got a problem with him just doing it the, the rest of his career, frankly. I, I think um, films and songs, um, specific songs, are a very big part of uh, Tarantino's films. Um, so I, I think a lot of the time you, you have a song that is there for specific reasons. I think that's why he doesn't do it. That, yeah, um, that, my dad, but I think that's, yeah, yeah, to kind of, like, get the mood or whatever, he just, like, writes it and then he probably just thinks of the, the song in his head that he wants to, like, just have there and then he just gets it, maybe. I, I don't know, but I, I'm, I'm fine with what he does now, frankly. And the next one we have from uh, TGP73, uh, we have, is there a worse accent in film other than QT's Australian accent in Django Unchained? Also, um, Craig H. Mandy uh, put um, did the QT cameo take it out of the film like it did for me um, so cover both those at the same time yes there are several worse uh, accent, accents in cinema than that I take you to Brian J- uh, James I think it is um, his British accent um, in Tango and Cash <laughs> is, is, 
is worse than Tarantino's Australian accent. Which, uh, in answer to uh, Craig Hedgeman's uh, question, no, it didn't, it didn't take me out of it at all. Uh, yes, it's a terrible accent, and yes, we all know Quentin Tarantino isn't a very good actor, but it kind of fit with the ethos of the film, I think, to be honest. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing. The idea of these Australian... The, the fact that these guys are Australian in the first place is, like, already weird enough. It's already jarring enough. So just having Tarantino in there... I, I was fine with it. I mean, fuck me. I, like, I, I, I prefer that than Don Cheadle in the Oceans films. Oh, God, yeah. That's bad. Um, oh, God. Um... Team Zizu, we have a lot of cash land in your lap. Would you build and run a cinema, make a film, or set up a distribution film company? Uh, yes, I certainly would. Um, I was having a conversation with uh, Dan Zerif um, uh, on Twitter the other day um, about um, the daughter of um, the guy who was Oracle Software. I can't remember the name off the top of my head now. Megan um, Ellison, is that? Megan Ellison, yeah. yeah. Um, She's, uh, her and her brother, um, David, are both um, film producers, um, and they own production companies, um, and the reason why they're able to do that is because their dad is worth a phenomenal amount of money, but, um, you know, one's making great films and one's making films, um, so, you know, you can kind of... You know, I, if if I had that amount of money, yeah, I, I I'd probably look at doing something like that. Um, if I had a small amount of money but was you know comfortable enough to live on, I I'd probably open a, a second-hand you know film shop, stroke cafe, something like that. That'd be cool. Um, I don't know, like it, it's because like. You know, I mean, in the end of the day, the, the, the commercial market is is the, the defining factor that would come into these kinds of things. So, like, if you want to, like, a film distribution company or a cinema, like, you might be able to get one or two of your own personal things, like, in there. But I bet it would be against 50 things you just have to do for the market. You know, like, I, I don't know, like, I think it would be a money is no object kind of deal like the, where I'd actually actively want to get into that kind of thing, you know. Um, but I mean, it's, it's an interesting... I like your idea of a second-hand film store. That's, that's quite cool. Um, I, I, I don't know. I, um, I probably wouldn't do either, to be honest, because they'd be a fucking incredible amount of work. And I quite like watching films. And I'm pretty sure if you ran a cinema or like ran a film distribution company, you probably wouldn't actually be watching a lot of films. <laughs> no, no, uh, yeah. So, I mean, I, I'd want to do. I'd, I'd, if, if, if I inherited a large sort of thing, I'd, I'd, I'd either do fuck all or I'd do something film wise. But then again, it'd probably be something very lazily film wise. <laughs> mm. Like I'd probably give somebody a lot of money to do something for me. I'd just tack my name on the edge of it. Nice. <laughs> yeah, just to be a, just 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 to be in on it. Um, Another question from uh, Team Z, uh, which um, a dying Star Trek fan got his wish to see the new Star Trek film. Um, which sequel would you have to see if you were on your last legs? Sunshine. Um, Rambo 5. Yeah, like if, if there was ever going to be uh, a Sunshine 2, 
um, I would want to see it before I die because I, I like, even though, even though, God, what if it was bad? What if it was directed by Len Wiseman? Fuck you. <laughs> I, 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 I just, I'd like to see another, um, another Rambo film before I die. I don't care if it's shit. I just want to see another Rambo film. I nice. really hope that Rambo 5 gets made. Um, last one, uh, which was um, Steve Dixon, um, and he put, does anyone do a chat at a table scene like Tarantino? He does that loads in all his films, and they're all great. Um, no, I don't think anybody else can do that group chat kind of scene um, like Tarantino. Um, I think he, he, I mean, he opens his first film with one. Uh, in Reservoir Dogs and you know you've got with that you've got one conversation going on and you've got other little conversations going on I think he just writes he writes ensemble pieces so so spectacularly so um, with such bravado uh, I think you know he's, he's one that can do it I'd say the closest anyone else comes is because um, I mean a, a conversation thing like that is a it's a general shooting the shit kind of thing that that makes you know these characters rather than know what these characters are doing or what these characters are about. Uh, I would say the people who come closest to the Coen brothers do it quite well. Mm. Uh, they they do the uh, generic nonsense conversation very well. Michael Mann, coffee table scene, he. Oh, God, yes. Oh, what a beautiful scene that is. That will, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, even though I don't know where... Whether if he, I don't know, does Michael Mann have any other kind of at a table and chatting? I, I I think just off that one, I think you can you can include it. <laughs> yeah, good call. Um, we do uh, have an email. Cool. I, I haven't seen this email. So this will be news to me. So I'm not going to say this person's name just because they use kind of a pseudonym um, at the end of the email, but um, they'll know who they are, obviously. Uh, so it's great show, guys. Refreshing to hear two genuinely intelligent guys discussing films in depth. Thank you very much. Uh, question for your next show. What three movies scare the shit out of you? Uh, Chogler. So that's Chogler there asking what three movies scare the shit out of us. Um... Well, um, Marta's didn't scare me, but it freaked me the fuck out. Yeah. Marta's got me. The Descent got me, because um, I, 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 I'm slightly claustrophobic, not very claustrophobic, but I'm terribly terrified of being trapped somewhere where I can't get out of. So The Descent terrified me. Um, 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 Candyman still freaks me the fuck out. That's a good one. Yeah. Yeah. I've seen that hundreds of times probably, uh, and it still freaks me the fuck out. I'm trying to think. Not in a, like, oh, I'm so great, I don't have to do that. Like, I I can handle anything kind of a way. Uh, Not that at all. Um, Scared. Scared. Uh, the Evil Dead, the first time I watched it, really fucking scared me, actually. Like, genuinely. Um, it, 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 Evil Dead, um, like, that that flick is really quite terrifying um, to me. Um, also, I mean, anything that's kind of, like, body horror-y tends to get me. Um, I can't say I was scared by Videodrome, but Videodrome weirds me the fuck out as well. Um 
Twin Peaks by a walk. Now, I know I've already done three, but Twin Peaks by a walk with me it still fucking freaks me out. And I've seen that dozens of times, and it still fucking gets me. Yeah, yeah, that is a good one, actually. Um, yeah, because, like, Lost Highway's got that for me as well. Um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, The Evil Dead, definitely, the first time I watched it. The Exorcist, first time I watched it. Holy shit. You've changed your avatar. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, um, I, I literally, I, I, while recording, I have changed my Twitter avatar, um, Noel kind of made that one for me, based on an old Planet of the Apes poster. Yeah, well, wow, that, that freaked me a bit out. <laughs> yeah, man, I haven't changed my Twitter avatar for maybe at least two years. <laughs> yeah, I just had a conversation with uh, David Harlow, just like, oh, can hell, what the fuck's that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um... I've- what else, man? I know because I know there's other stuff, but I just can't fucking think of it. That's really annoying. The wreck films, actually, uh, at least the oh, first yeah. two. Uh, the first wreck I saw with my, myself and my uh, my mate Neil, who um, who came on the stag, the kind of the, oh, oh, yeah. the hairy copper. Um, he, we um, basically he'd come in to um, view all the time when I was previewing stuff and like watch stuff with me, and we watched that by ourselves at about midnight in a like 360 seat screen by ourselves and that was fucking terrifying that genuinely was terrifying was that it was the first wreck because like they're both they're both the 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 first two are so intense for so much as i mean wreck 2 is more intense throughout the entire thing and has also got aspects of body horror so yeah, Wreck 2, I would actually say, I, I, yeah, it, it, like, genuinely does scare me, and still, like, puts the shit up me, actually. It, it is, um, yeah, it is fucking, they are great films. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so, uh, I think that's the end of the show. I, I, I think we are done for this week, um... Yeah, uh, hopefully you've enjoyed our, our take on uh, Django and Jane. We'll be back with our movie marathon next, not next week, but next episode, we'll yeah. say. Um, but it will be recorded next week, so uh, but when it'll come out as soon as we can get it up and available. And we still managed to go two hours. Yeah, we did. I noticed that. <laughs> um, so, uh, dude in the monkey at gmail.com, at dude in the monkey, at Ian Loring, at Mark Foster. Uh, sorry, no, at uh, Dufos. My apologies. Um, and yeah, uh, see you guys next week. Or next episode. <laughs> Cheers.